Going to sea to sail through space, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. This is a fun one. I'll take you down to the home port of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Naval Base San Diego, where the Navy is working with NASA to prepare for the ocean recovery of Orion, the spacecraft that may carry astronauts to the Moon and Mars. We'll go on board the USS Anchorage, talk with the head of NASA's recovery team and astronaut Stephen Bowen, and with the commanding officer of the Anchorage. Bruce Betts will be along later with What's Up. To begin, we welcome back the Planetary Society's digital editor, Jason Davis. Jason, welcome back once again. You posted on January 25th at planetary.org this new piece called Creating a Guidebook for Earth's Hypothetical Twin, which is not so much about is there life out there on uh, some Earth-like planet in the Goldilocks zone, but but how we're going to detect that life uh, from the enormous distance that we're working from. And you talked to at least one great astronomer. I guess she told you, among other things, that really it's not enough to be an astronomer. You're going to have to be kind of a geologist, a chemist, a, a, a biologist, and, and maybe even a climatologist. Yeah, you really need to have a complete picture of uh what life was like here on Earth uh, over our history, and to realize that humans have only been on Earth for just kind of a fraction of that, well, a, a medium, fra- a sizable fraction of that, but certainly um, not the entire time that we've had life here on Earth. And you really need all of these different sciences to uh, pull together a picture of what Earth was like and what you would see if you look through a telescope at us in these different points in history. And then extrapolate from that on how when we start looking at these exoplanets that are Earth size, what we're going to see and uh, how to interpret that. I had this mistaken impression, as as maybe others do, that maybe we'll find this perfect little blue dot that looks just like us, has you know mostly nitrogen in the atmosphere and some oxygen and some carbon dioxide. And we'll say, hey, that looks just like Earth. Congratulations, everyone. High fives. We found a Earth 2.0. <laughs> This this scientist I spoke with, Sarah Rugenheimer, she she told me, you know, you kind of have to. That's a little Earth centric to think of it that way, because for most of Earth's history, carbon dioxide was the dominant gas, and it was certainly the dominant gas while there was life here on Earth. So it really gives these scientists something to think about as they um, get ready to start getting these first results back from exoplanets when these uh, new telescopes go online. You have a great graph that illustrates this these the balance of these gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and oxygen, across what we know to be Earth's four and a half billion dollar uh, dollar <laughs> four and a half billion uh, year history. Uh, we'll get into dollars later when we talk about building expensive new telescopes. And it really is pretty fascinating. Uh, is this something that you got from the uh, astronomers? It was a combination of the astronomers telling me about this information, and they showed me a much more technical version of this with a lot more gases in it. Um, and then they pointed me to a Scientific American article that had uh, a graph that was kind of like this. So I had our own Merck Boyan uh, recreate that graph. We also put a link back to the Scientific American 
American paper to give them all due credit for the the neat concept and the way they presented it. Uh, yeah, so I had never seen a graph that was quite like this showing the dominant gases in Earth's atmosphere over time. And it's really staggering to look at that and say, wow, for most of Earth's history, humans would not want to be here. It's not a friendly place <laughs> for us until relatively recently. And uh, that has to do with early Earth just having so much carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere, which for all we know could be the same scenario on Earth-like planets elsewhere. Yeah, I'm going to be sure to send a thank you card to uh, those single-celled uh, creatures on our planet <laughs> that figured out photosynthesis uh, yes. <laughs> and made it all possible. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so we're beginning to figure out how we're going to recognize a planet that might have life, at least as we know it. How far are we now from having the instruments that are going to give us the data? The first big chance will be 2019, and that's James Webb hoping it still launches in 2019, all goes well, and it gets up and running. It's going to be able to at least look at a couple of these Earth-size exoplanets. The reason it can't look at all of them, and I put this to one of the scientists, I was like, so as soon as James Webb gets up there, we're going to look at you know all 30 that we know of. And she's like, well, not exactly. Um, and, and that's mainly because even with these next generation telescopes like James Webb, it's still very hard to directly look at exoplanets next to their bright stars, uh, especially some of these red dwarf stars. And that's what the majority of the stars that we know of that have exoplanets are. And red dwarfs, when they have Earth-like exoplanets, the planets tend to be in very close to the star, which makes them even harder to see. Nevertheless, James Webb should be able to look at a couple of them and characterize them. So we're only a few years away from getting some of these preliminary results. And then after that, uh, some of our ground-based telescopes coming online, like in the mid-20s, there's the uh, very large telescope that the Europeans have. Uh, and then if the 30-meter telescope gets built, um, whether that be Hawaii or an alternate location, it might be able to pick up some of these as well. That's reason enough for me to retain my incurable optimism that we're not <laughs> we're not far from discovering Earth 2.0. Almost. <laughs> Jason, thanks so much once again. Thanks, Matt. That's his piece posted to planetary.org on January 25th of this year. Jason Davis is the Planetary Society's digital editor and our embedded reporter with the LightSail project. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Lieutenant Price, Laura Price, Public Affairs Officer for Expeditionary Strike Group 3. Thank you for coming out this morning. Uh, U.S. Navy has a long-standing partnership with NASA, so we're excited you could be here today to share in some of that um, and learn about what NASA and USS Anchorage, uh, LPD-23, which you see behind me, did while at sea the last 10 days. That was the start of the media briefing that welcomed us to Naval Base San Diego. There wasn't just a huge amphibious ship a few meters from us. Even closer was a mock-up, a test article, simulating NASA's Orion capsule, the spaceship that may one day carry humans into deep space. There is nothing simple about human spaceflight. Learning how to recover a spacecraft that has splashed down in the Pacific Ocean is no small feat. Or maybe I should say learning again. The Navy and NASA had it pretty well figured out by the time of the Apollo program, but that last happened decades ago. And Orion is a very different ship, even if it shares that proven capsule look. And the recovery ships have also evolved over those years. The USS Anchorage and its sister ships are pretty special. Here's one of its officers giving us a tour of the huge open well at the ship's stern. Operators attach that winch to the capsule and then towed it around and landed it right here. 
This is all underwater, so this can go uh, six to eight feet. Uh, over the last week, we were about six feet deep uh, in here, and uh, as I said earlier, the line went all the way out and around. We attached the, to the capsule, and then we just towed it right back in, and there's a little cradle here, and then we de-ballasted uh, and uh, came back on dry land here. Obviously, this ship wasn't built to handle spacecraft. Mm -hmm. What would normally be coming in here? So the greatest comparison would be a LCU, a landing craft unit. The only difference is that it comes under its own power. So whereas we have a winch to tow the capsule in, the, the LCU would come in on its own power. We would ballast up to eight feet at the sill uh, over there. And uh, we would just drive in or under in. We would throw lines down. And instead of using llamas, we just have line handlers come in. And they would guide the LCU uh, in the center of the well deck. And then we would de-ballast and we would just sit flat on, on the deck right here. Uh, my name is Melissa Jones. I'm the NASA Recovery Director. I lead the team that will ultimately recover the capsule as it splashes off the coast of the Pacific Ocean. So I feel pretty lucky because I'm close to home. I live down this way, even though we're based in Pasadena. And to be able to, you know, go 10 minutes away and see what we're standing next to right now, this test article, and talk to folks like you. First of all, tell us about this this object. So this is a mock-up capsule. We call it the boiler te plate test article, and it is to simulate the Orion capsule. It has a, um, the most important similarities. It's about the same weight. Um, it's got a very similar center of gravity. But most importantly, it has these flight um, attach points here which we call um, toe cleats. And so when we do testing on how to recover the capsule, we use the same attach points that they have on the Orion flight vehicle. You know what else I love? Are these painted on or decals that show where the thrusters are going to be? <laughs> yeah, so we, um, we try to practice uh, tests like you fly. And so even though they are simulated, uh, if we put them in the proper locations, like for instance, this thruster right here is right underneath the hatch. And so when we do our hazard evaluation and the guys are mocking up that how that works, we want them to know where those locations will actually be at. So they don't step on one. They can, right. yeah, right. When it, they can, I mean, if they screw up here, it won't count. They just scratch the paint. Right, right, absolutely. And we also these thrusters. We will, um, we do what we call quote unquote sniff checks with um, probes to make sure that they're not leaking ammonia or hydrazine. And so this helps them figure out where they'll do those hazard assessments at. Hydrazine, nasty stuff. Yes, yes, it is. What is the actual process? Tell us how this has worked so far in the test and how it will work with the actual Orion capsule. For the testing, we load all of this stuff on the ship in the well deck, um, and then we flood the well deck, which is in the back of the ship. It's like a giant swimming pool. We're looking at this now. It's a huge opening at the back of the anchorage, yes. the ship we're standing a few feet away from. Yes, so we they're called landing platform dock LPD class ships. They put the stern gate down in the back, and the, basically the whole back end floods like a, like a big swimming pool. And we have this um, attached to lines. It becomes live, basically. It floats up, and so now it's moving in the well deck. And we um, attach a boat to the, to the back of the capsule that's outside of the well deck, and it pulls the capsule out. Hmm. And we basically we call it deploying it. And then what we do is we practice attaching the lines, quickly and safely as we can, trying to perfect our process. 
in our timing because when crew is on board, we want to get them out as quickly as possible. We have a two-hour requirement to get them out. We're trying to validate that requirement, but as quickly as we can get them out because when you come back from a microgravity environment, they don't typically feel very well. So we try, we're trying to be quick in, um, with our processes and perfect them to the point where we can assure that we are able to get the astronauts out in a timely fashion um, so that they get to medical as quickly as possible. And I'm thinking, in the case of Orion, eventually you may be taking people out who've just made a one-year trip back from Mars. Yes, sir. That is the goal. So we have two recovery methods. Um, We wanted to have flexibility, knowing that they're probably not going to feel very well. So we test open water hardware. What I mean by that is there's a big floating um, stabilization collar that we inflate and we put around the capsule. It allows us to get to the crew faster. So if they're not feeling well and they want to get out in the open water, that allows for the divers to have a stable platform to stand on to open the hatch and pull the astronauts out. And then um, they will either be airlifted by a helicopter to the the ship or put in a small boat and they'll be taken to the ship. You made reference to something called the front porch. (laughs) Yes, so the front porch is actually a very cool piece of hardware. It floats and it attaches to the uh, stabilization collar. And it is quite large and it allows four astronauts to lay flat on their back. So it's very, very large um, and have a medical assessments done. And so we will practice with that and train with that in the event that we need to use it for recovery. But a great benefit of the front porch is that in the event that there's an abort, if we land somewhere we don't expect to land, and there are not forces there to get to them quickly, the front porch allows them to get out of the capsule into a safe environment. It's got a protective screen around it for the environment and so that they can have more room to move around and be outside of the capsule until rescue forces arrive. Contrast this process that you've been talking about with what happened nearly 50 years ago now with with Apollo. Yeah. So there are some fundamental differences between the two capsules. The Orion capsule is larger and it's designed for deep space. Um, Apollo was not. Apollo had a lifting ring that allowed for um, lifting with a crane in a dynamic ocean environment onto an aircraft carrier. Um, Orion does not have that same lifting structure at the top. But they do have these tow cleats, which allow for um, very high loads during uh, recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's why we don't lift the capsule um, and we pull it into the well deck. That's a big change. But some of the other things, like placing that flotation collar around the capsule, I mean, what you're talking about may be more advanced, but the principle's the same, isn't it? That is correct. It is the same. That was for open water recovery for the Apollo astronauts as well. Well, I mean, it's a very different capsule, but you look at it and you think, boy, that's something that worked pretty well years ago. Yes, yes, it did. The benefit of a capsule design allows your the hazards of the rocket to be underneath it, and it, it allows the capsule to be a safe environment for the crew. Um, the space shuttle design did not uh, separate those two hazards like a capsule design does. And so I think that's why we've gone back to a capsule atop all of the the flame, the smoke and fire that comes from the rockets. So, And there's also on the Orion capsule, there's something called a launch abort system that allows it to be pulled away from any kind of failure from underneath. And that's another um, safety mechanism that we have on board the integrated vehicle. Just as there was on Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And and it's been tested and worked pretty well, right? Absolutely, yep. 
Where do you hope to be when the first Orion capsule comes back with uh, people inside? Well, I hope, as the NASA Recovery Director, that I am on the flight deck watching it all happen. Have you ever spent time on a Navy ship before getting involved, before getting this job? Uh, No, sir, I haven't. Actually, um, I've been on the Navy ship twice. I've had two tests. It's not like anything I've ever experienced before. My dad and my uncles and both my grandfathers were in the Navy, um, so they have, but um, I had never experienced it. It's quite interesting. So go Navy. Go Navy. And go NASA. And go NASA, absolutely. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, anytime. Melissa Jones, NASA Recovery Director for the Exploration Ground Systems Landing and Recovery Team. When we return, we'll meet the captain of the USS Anchorage and talk with the astronaut who was at sea for the just-completed URT, or Underway Recovery Test. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, this is Casey Dreyer, the Director of Space Policy here at the Planetary Society. And I wanted to let you know that right now Congress is debating the future of NASA's budget. The House has proposed to increase NASA's budget and also increase planetary science in 2018. The Senate, however, has proposed to cut both. You can make your voice heard right now. We've made it easy to learn more if you go to planetary.org slash petition2017. Thank you. You can share your passion for space exploration by giving someone a gift membership to the Planetary Society this holiday season or any time of year. Your friend or loved one would join us as we nurture new and exciting science, advocate for space, and educate the world. The gift of space starts at planetary.org forward slash give space. That's planetary.org forward slash give space. Because, come on, it's space. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan, taking you back to Naval Base San Diego, home of the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet where NASA is working with the Navy to prepare for the ocean recovery of the Orion spacecraft. We'll meet astronaut Stephen Bowen soon. First, though, here's the commanding officer of the USS Anchorage, Captain Dennis Jacko. Good morning. I'd like to thank uh, Melissa Jones, Captain Bowen, and the NASA team uh, for giving us this opportunity. The close teamwork, preparation, led to the successful execution of uh, URT-6. It's been months in planning. The Navy... Uh, NASA relationship has gone even further back, myself personally, six years now. I happen to be command, uh, captain on uh, USS New Orleans when they did the first ship checks, and now I am incredibly happy to be here now actually executing the mission. The LPD class, LPD-17, San Antonio class, of which uh, Anchorage is uh, in that class, fantastic ship. It's one of the best built, best designed ships the Navy has, and uh, despite the fact that it's designed for amphibious assault, transporting Marines and getting them, uh, get them there to their objectives, it is actually very uniquely suited to the NASA mission. Uh, as you can see behind me, it's got a, the well deck that the, the uh, space capsule will come into. It also has a very robust medical facilities, uh, including two operating rooms to support astronauts when they come back. Embarked aviation capabilities, so we can bring our own helicopters that uh, as the later missions become more complex, that's going to be part of the package, uh, as well as carrying multiple small boats. If you uh, see the videos, uh, there's probably about six, seven boats that are involved in recovery. 800 racks, places for people to sleep, as well as and about 25,000 square feet of vehicle space to embark all that gear required for the URT mission. Captain Jacko later took over our tour of the Anchorage. 
shepherding us throughout his impressive ship. Well, when we're doing the NASA testing, this is exclusive for NASA. Uh, yeah, obviously, it's, it's very high, uh, high visibility and very sensitive. Uh, but we do have small boat operations, which is part of the NASA testing. Uh, we put the what are called CRICS, uh, which are combat rigid radar, uh, uh, rubber rating craft, uh, out on the stern, deck, stern gate, which you walked across. Actually put them on there, lower it down, and that's how we launch those craft. Uh, we probably have total, uh, probably maybe about 120 people involved, both in the boats as well as in the well deck up on the bridge driving the ship. But you can't forget about the engineers down below and everybody else that uh, keeps the ship running to be able to facilitate that recovery. Uh, so we come right off of the flight deck, come through here, and you're already in medicals. We have two operating rooms, and this is the triage area where you get bring, bring casualties in. Uh, we even have a morgue, as necessary, uh, right behind you here. Uh, this is actually, you're going to feel as you go through the ship, there's double doors, that's overpressurization system that keeps, in a chemical warfare environment, keeps the chemicals out. So you get good air inside that comes in through filters, overpressurization pushes clean air out, doesn't let bad air in. This is part of it. So if you have a casualty that's been slimed, has chemical, been hit by a chemical weapon, you bring that litter on the other side, put them inside, that is a decontamination booth, and then you bring them inside the skin of the ship where he doesn't contaminate everybody else. I should have asked uh, the NASA representative this, but you know, even in Apollo days, there were concerns about protecting us on Earth from whatever might have been brought back from the moon, when the concerns will be even greater on Mars, which Orion may come back from someday. Is that something the Navy's talking about? I do not have, uh, we haven't discussed any of that. Yeah, it's, it's a few years in the future. So. I don't want to mislead you. I am not hiding anything. <laughs> <laughs> when you started your Navy career, Captain, did you imagine that you'd someday be helping us uh, learn how to take spacecraft? Uh, Get back in? No. Specifically that, no. But uh, when you're on an amphibious uh, ship like this, uh, you do a wide range of missions, and you bring all kinds of things into the well deck and the different missions. It's not just putting Marines onto the beach. We do what's called DISC operations, which is uh, defense support of uh, civil authorities. So it's essentially like disaster relief. Uh, so as a, starting out as a naval officer, you don't think that you're going to do these missions, but the amphibious ships really are jacks of all trades. We do all sorts of missions, great capability, everything from medical to the flight decks, to obviously the well decks, which is uh, pretty unique among the world's navies. How do you and the crew feel about being involved in a project like this, working with NASA? Oh, it's a, the crew really appreciates the historic nature of uh, working with NASA. Uh, yeah, it means a lot to them. You know, like I said, uh, space capsule with American flag on it, uh, American astronauts with NASA patches on their uh, uniforms, uh, means everything. Keeping uh, America at the forefront of space exploration. That long history with the Navy, going back to the Mercury days, that that you guys are definitely in that line. Oh, absolutely, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a great tradition, and, uh, you know, if, if NASA needs the space capsule to come down at sea, uh, obviously the Navy has a very unique capability uh, to facilitate uh, the recovery. Thanks, Captain. Oh, thank you. Captain Dennis Jacko, commanding officer of the USS Anchorage. Also aboard the Anchorage for the Orion's Underway Recovery Test, or URT Number 4, was a retired Navy captain and former submariner. Stephen Bowen went from plumbing the depths of the ocean to flying high above our planet on three shuttle missions. He logged over 47 hours on spacewalks during seven different EVAs. Captain Bowen represented the interests of the astronauts who will one day fly on Orion beyond low Earth orbit, far beyond. I love your Mach 25 patch. Thank you, so do I. <laughs> um, 
this is going faster on the way back, so we've got to calculate yeah. that sometime. At 25,000 miles an hour, we'll be coming into the atmosphere a little bit faster than we did on the shuttle. So Down to 300 miles an hour. Yeah. You've got to depend on that heat shield. The heat shield's really important. You know, one of the great things about the shuttle is you'd be sitting there on entry, and you can watch the plasma shooting up with as mission specialist too, you watch the plasma shooting over that upper window, and then the front windows actually kind of glow orange ah. as you're coming through the plasma. And then it clears up, you get to see it a little closer to the Earth, but everything's moving a lot faster than it was, you know, seemingly, because you're a little closer to it. And, uh, yeah, this will be a similar experience uh, looking out those windows, except those windows are all looking up. We won't be looking at a runway. I'm going to ask you the question that you guys get asked all the time about going from shuttle to Orion. Mm-hmm. And the legacy this, this has. I right. mean, clearly, it's a descendant of Apollo, oh, although it's a much more advanced capsule. Absolutely. I mean, just talk about that, that contract. Well, you know, the big difference is the mission. This capsule, uh, only a very, very brief period of time is it uh, leaving or entering the Earth's atmosphere. So the key design here is to make this thing survivable in deep space, it, potentially years and years in deep space. Trips you, to Mars. Yeah, potentially trips to Mars. I, as the mission evolves and they get longer and longer, this is going to be essentially a rescue uh, capability. We'll be attached to some habitat in which we'll live. So you can imagine four people trapped in this thing for long periods of time. At some point, they'll let us go someplace else, so a habitat module will be really vital for those long trips. But this will be your ride home, and so it's got to be safe, it's got to be reliable, and it's our ride home if something goes wrong on any of those transits as well. It's a really, really important capability. It's very different than the shuttle. You know, the shuttle was low Earth orbit, designed to carry things to space and bring things home. This is a totally different mission. I'm also thinking of the legacy that this has, which all of you talked about during the opening mm-hmm. comments here. Going back to Mercury, ocean right. recovery, do you feel a connection with all those pioneers, those guys who used to yeah, wear well, these flight suits? Yeah, I have been around long enough to have met a few of them through the years and having the opportunity to talk to uh, some of the people. You know, actually, Walt Cunningham came by the office a mm-hmm. few months ago. I had a chance to talk to him about ocean recovery uh, to better understand what, what they think. You know, you get a different flavor when you get to talk to somebody that's been through it, and uh, he may be more willing to talk about things to fellow astronauts sometimes, too. So it's, it was a great opportunity to learn. Yeah, and that, that legacy, you, you feel it with all the programs all the way back. Uh, we've had a pretty good, in the office, you know, you kind of have this generational thing. It's, it's very much like any continuous operating thing. You have people that have been there a long time and, you know, sort of people turning over. Unfortunately, I may be one of the people, the older people now, but I don't, don't want to say that uh, <laughs> after 17 years. But, you know, we got to carry that legacy on. It's a really important thing. And, and being, being able to reach back and touch and understand it really helps a lot. Speaking of legacy, you talked about the significance of this day that we're talking yeah. this week yeah. in the history of human spaceflight uh, for the United States. And I, I just wonder how that hits home with you as well. Oh, every year it, it hits home. Uh, now, I was three years old for, actually not quite three years old for Apollo 1, but for... Uh, Challenger, I was a senior at the Naval Academy, and uh, you know, seeing the impact of the loss of Challenger uh, on the nation uh, was eye-opening. Tremendous impact. The Naval Academy lost uh, a graduate in that, and then Columbia. I was already in the office. I knew the Columbia crew, and some of my, you know, I, I have often said that if you could have picking, taken the seven best people in the office and just great human beings to to work with and deal with. They were right up there, all seven of them. It was just a tremendous loss. Really hit home. 
uh, for those of us that, that were there, and, and then extending that beyond uh, to the NASA family at large, and then the community, and then the nation. I think sometimes uh, we lose sight of how important uh, exploration and research and our space program really is to the country because we get focused on the details and not, and not on the larger relevance of it. Uh, unfortunately, this it, is one of those weeks when you have that opportunity to, to reflect on it before you get wrapped up in work and getting this vehicle off the ground. You think any of those heroes regretted the choice they made? Oh, absolutely not. You know, that's the risk you take when you get on the vehicle. I always get that question as a, from students, actually from adults too. Uh, so were you afraid when you launched? And I say, no, not, not as you think of it. Because once you've got yourself strapped in there, you're on the vehicle, you've had years of studying and understanding the, the engineering capabilities, you know the risks. You've already accepted that. So that decision is made. What you're truly, really afraid of is your own personal uh, ability to meet the demand. So they spent a year training you to do something. Now you actually have to go do it. So that trepidation, that, that uh, questioning of oneself is, is really what you feel on the launch pad. And then when, when you actually are able to ex- execute it, it's like anything that's difficult to do. We make things look so easy for people sometimes. But if there was anything that really needs to be understood is if you work really hard at something and you actually accomplish it, there is no better feeling in the world. And so the training that we get, it's miraculous to allow me, you know, I, carry, I grew up carrying buckets of cement for my dad laying tile and, you know, I go out and do spacewalks. It's, it's a miracle. Yeah, working hard is a great thing and the results, it's, it's worth it, every moment of it. Hoping to get a ride on Orion? Oh, well, I'll take a ride on anything. You know, I'm in the office. I've worked space station uh, for a long time, worked shuttle. I, and, uh, you know, just to be in the office, just to have the ability to, to work on any of these programs from the astronaut perspective is such a unique opportunity. And, you know, I feel like I've won the lottery every time uh, somebody asks me about that. Sure feels that way to me. Thank well, you, thank Captain. You. Thank you very much. Veteran astronaut Stephen Bowen talking with me at Naval Base San Diego on California's Pacific Coast, where, before long, men and women will return to land from journeys into deep space. I want to thank NASA, the U.S. Navy, and the officers and sailors aboard the USS Anchorage for sharing their stories with us. Bruce is next. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. I am in the studio at uh, Planetary Society headquarters in Pasadena, California, with the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Welcome. Hey, Matt. Good to be here together in person with you. It's always better. It's always better face-to-face this way. It always it's, makes for better radio and podcasts. And I shouldn't be welcoming you. You're here much more than me. Welcome, Matt. This is our building. You live here sometimes, but not often. I've even slept here a couple of times. We won't go into that. We don't really want to know about that. If I did sleep here tonight, what would I see? What you'd want to do is wake up before dawn and look over in the east. Anywhere from a couple hours uh, to when dawn starts to break, there's a cool lineup of planets. You got from the upper right to the lower left, as you're looking at the eastern horizon, you've got really bright Jupiter, and then reddish Mars, and then Saturn, yellowish. And just to make it even more interesting. 
Mars will be moving from closer to Jupiter to closer to Saturn over this week or two and passing by the reddish star Antares in Scorpius. Antares is actually a little bit brighter, so don't confuse the two. But wait, don't order yet. (laughs) The moon will join the planets in Antares on February 7th through the 11th. It'll go from upper right to lower left over a few days, uh, looking quite lovely. So check it out. I always like it when you... Don't just talk planets, but planets in relationship to the other stuff that's out there, because we need to pay some attention to stars. If you look just the upper left of Matt's head, on fa- <laughs> <laughs> you're right. We do. We should. I should pay more attention to stars. They're they're just so hot and gaseous. And we're the planetary society. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you want a star? I'll give you a star. On February fifteenth. There is a partial solar eclipse if you happen to be in Chile, Argentina, or Antarctica. (laughs) I won't be, but... (laughs) Well, maybe next time. All right, we move on to this week in space history. It was 60 years ago that Explorer 1 launched the first U.S. satellite. You know, I just saw that NASA is going to do a little celebration, certainly warranted. I mean, that's... It wasn't the start of the space age, (laughs) (laughs) Because the other guys we're going to talk about beat us to that. But it was still so significant. Great story behind that spacecraft. Uh, It really was. And it was the third successful uh, flight, the first successful U.S. flight. They tried a Navy tried a Vanguard launch before that that did not succeed. And they put it together so very quickly at JPL and made it it with a rocket. We should find that that great photo of Wouter von Braun and other guys. Is it Van Allen or I forget who else holding up a model or a backup uh, copy of the uh, satellite? It's, It's really fun. Yeah, I believe it's Van Allen and Pickering. Yeah, and it was the back in the days when you could hold a satellite. <laughs> and now we've come full circle with CubeSats and things like LightSail. You can hold them again. We should recreate that with the LightSail. My thinking exactly. Oh, we're getting the engineering model out. Okay, who do you want to be? Now, we'll, we'll go over it later. We'll show everyone the picture. It'll be great. All right, also this week, 1971, Apollo 14 landed and, of course, did wonderful and great science. But I know you like it every year when I point out also the first golf balls hit on the moon. And I usually say, four. <laughs> four. <laughs> All right, we move on to space fact. I like the beat. Da, 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 da. It's a cha-cha. <laughs> It is. Feeling cha-cha. All right, we'll do Explorer 1. The total mass of the satellite was 13.4 kilograms, so about 31 pounds on Earth, of which 8 kilograms, or about 18 pounds, were instrumentation. It carried science instrumentation on board to measure things, including leading to the discovery of the Van Allen belts. In comparison, the mass of Sputnik 1 was about 84 kilograms, or 184 pounds. All right, we move on to the trivia contest, and I asked you, what was the first in-space docking of two unmanned, so robotic, spacecraft? How'd we do? Well, this one was a good uh, one to enter. The odds were good because we had uh, fewer entries than usual. I don't know what scared people off. And there were a couple of people who came up with what we believe were incorrect answers, but interesting. Among those who came up with the one we were looking for, or you were looking for anyway, was Neil Ashelman. Neil Ashelman, far as I know, a first-time winner, though a long-time listener to the show in Davenport, Iowa, for you 
music man fans out there. I know you're one. I am indeed. My son was the music man. <laughs> Dubuque, Des Moines, Davenport, Marshalltown, Ames. I forget. Anyway, it's in the song. Go look it up. <laughs> My other son helped sing the song, and I know you did, too. Yeah, I did in high school. <laughs> okay. Neil says that the answer was the, the first docking of two unmanned spacecraft was the rendezvous of the Soviet Cosmos 186 and 188, one day shy of Halloween, October 30th, 1967. That is correct. All right. Neil, congrats. You've won yourself a beautiful Planetary Society t-shirt from Chop Shop, where there is a Planetary Society store. You can check it out at chopshopstore.com and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. Brian Hewlett in Charlottesville, Virginia, home of the Cavaliers, that was a year and a half after Gemini 8, that earlier uh, human-driven rendezvous. Yeah, yeah, and pretty impressive to me that they were able to do a robotic rendezvous and, and dock. Also from Virginia, Kevin, I, you know what, I missed the pronunciation, Cowger or Cowger, uh, he said the first hard docking was Cosmos 212 and 213, but I didn't get a date on that or anything. I probably should have, I probably should have skipped it. But I, I, I do know Mel Powell in Sherman Oaks, California, who said, hmm, Cosmos 186 and 188 – what did Cosmos 187 do to be left out of the party? <laughs> Said something offensive, I'm sure. Maybe he was kicked out of the Communist Party. Maybe that's the party that, that Mel's talking about. Uh, probably. <laughs> All right. We're ready to go on. Back to our friend Explorer 1. What type of rocket launched the first U.S. satellite, Explorer 1? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. I love these ones that I know the answer to, but, of course, I won't reveal it. You have until the 7th, February 7th, at uh, 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer and win yourself a Planetary Radio T-shirt and a 200-point itelescope.net account. That's that worldwide network of telescopes uh, operated robotically, remotely, by you and other people who have these accounts, uh, by the iTelescope folks who, who do all this on a nonprofit basis. And you can donate that account to uh, a local school, an astronomy club, or just use it yourself. Maybe you'll, uh, I don't know, discover an exoplanet. Uh, that Don't count on that. <laughs> but you can do something really cool. Just don't count on that. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about how many spherical objects are currently around you. Because there are a lot of them around us in the studio right now. Thank you, and good night. Yeah, there really are. We have a lot of spheres. And a surprisingly large number of cubes as well. Dude, it's so geometric. That's Bruce Betts. He is the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society. And he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. and is made possible by its seaworthy members. Daniel Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Have you thought about giving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes? I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.